the man who wrote that, the Apostle Paul, was in violation of the government more often than any other person in the entire New Testament. And when he went to preach the gospel, he was very often thrown in jail. And ultimately, he was executed by the government that he refused to obey when it no longer functioned to protect good behavior and punish evil behavior. We are to submit for the Lord's sake. What do you mean, the Lord's sake? When the government is doing what the Lord designed it to do, when government turns the divine design on its head and protects those who do evil and makes those who do good afraid, it forfeits its divine purpose. In our world today, rulers are designing a culture that protects the immoral. It even has reached the point where it makes those who do good afraid. You know, everything is turned on its head. Our government is the source of lies and the protector of liars and the enemy of those who speak the truth. It praises the evil and persecutes the good. So God's design for government has been entirely corrupted. It will become the enemy of the divine design. It will turn everything upside down. It will become the punisher of those who do good, like putting James Coates in prison for preaching. Pastor James Coates is in jail for, for opening his church. And when a faithful pastor ends up behind bars, you know it's bad. It's a sign of trouble. And when churches and their pastors are silent, or when they cold-heartedly debate whether it's real persecution, and when they sanctimoniously condemn the man for violating tyrants, you know it's bad. A friend of mine in Texas, actually, we were communicating this week, and the churches have never shut in Texas, apparently. He voluntarily shut his church, I think, for six or seven weeks. Um, but after that, they opened up. But he said they were never under mandate to close the churches. But my friend in Texas said to me, he doesn't understand what's going on up here in Canada. He, he says, he's talking about the situation in Alberta. He says, he says to me, there's less than 100 people in the ICU in Alberta with COVID. And there's 4.5 million people in, a, in Alberta. And the pastors are okay with shutting the churches. I don't get it. And I, you know what my response to him is? He says, he says to me, he says, well, I'm a Texan. He says, and Texans are rebellious. We won't take this nonsense. <laughs> you know what I said to him? I said, yeah, this is Alberta. It's supposed to be Texas North. I can't explain it. These people are under a spell. Someone's cast a spell over them. There is a spell upon the land. I cannot understand it. Why am I saying what I'm saying? I'm doing what I'm doing today. Because there's a pastor in jail for leading his flock, 
for calling his flock to gather and worship the Savior who died for him, and the churches are okay with it. You know, like these people online, seminary students, pastors, theologians, they're okay with just callously debating whether this is real persecution. Let's have a real cerebral discussion about whether James Coates' family is being persecuted right now. That seems like a really needy thing to do. Or getting what he deserves for having the audacity to violate the almighty and ever-sacred public health orders. They do that. You watch it. But why is it all going on? Why are they doing this? Why are the people doing this? Why are they okay with it? Why are they so callous and cold-hearted about it? Why are they so loveless and hateful? Because their pastors are an example to them in word and deed. In word and deed. You know that Gospel Coalition Canada's authors have been more concerned about critiquing minute points of exegesis than they have about defending the least of these. And I don't like the tone of those people who are opposing the tyrants. Fine, then give us a better tone and do it on your own. Show me how it's done. I'll hold your beer. I, when I heard that Pastor Coates was in jail, do you know what I felt? I felt shame. I felt, could I have done more? I felt like I should be there with them. That's what I felt in my heart. I've been broken over this. But I can't imagine the shame that some of these guys feel who've parroted state dogma to the detriment of their churches. And part of me wonders what, if that's what they're trying to cover up. Right now our problem is what C.S. Lewis said. We're being led by men without chests. They're castrated geldings. But someone has to point the nation back to God. And someone has to tell the political leaders what it is to be a man. And what it is to not act like a castrated gelding. What it is to be a man with a chest. And someone needs to point them to the great shepherd who will lead them out of the valley of the shadow of death and who tells them they don't need to fear evil. He will comfort them. He will care for them. His name is not Williams or Cam or Kenny or Ford. His name is Christ. And he doesn't just have skin in the game. He's got blood in the game. How can you be certain that all the people killed pose an imminent threat to the United States? There's no doubt that civilians were killed. That shouldn't have been. State education produces people who believe in and perpetuate the state's preferred way of thinking. The, uh, the origins of the American education system start in the 19th century with reformers, so-called moral reformers, 
people like Horace Mann and others who uh, went to Prussia and found a system of education there that they wanted to emulate in the United States, which they did, and they brought it back here. And they established the modern public schooling system and the idea of a modern industrial capitalist curriculum. And they explicitly stated at the time these reformers who established the schools in the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s, they said at the time that what we need is to create citizens with these schools, which meant people who knew how to work under industrial, under, under industrial capitalism in a factory, and soldiers, people who were willing to fight and die for the country. So they needed to instill in people a regimentation the idea that people can be made, can and should be made, into machines, functionaries for a new civilization, a new modern civilization, where there were large factories and large armies. So the school system was designed purposely that way, and that's why we have the bell system, where the students move from class to class through the day, just like on an assembly line, and they are filled with one piece of information here, and then filled with another piece of information there. So they become both products of the assembly line, and they become the managers of the assembly line, ideally. It's compulsory and universal, the education system. So you are obligated by law to send your child to a school that is approved of by the state. Now, it can be your own school, but it has to be approved by the state. Most of us don't have that luxury for various reasons, and especially poor people and working class people, so they have to send their kids, most of them, to government-run schools, um, where they are obligated to stay by law from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., no matter what. And if they leave, they are truants, they become criminals, and their parents are liable to arrest and prosecution and imprisonment. And the job of the teachers, sure, is to educate them with whatever the state deems to be a proper education, but it's also to keep them in those seats and in those rooms and those buildings. If the kid decides to get up and be a free human being and leave that building, the teacher is the first person to tell him to stop, and the first person to call security to force him to stay. That's prison. It's a day prison. It's a minimum security prison, but it's a prison. If I don't send my son to that school, I go to prison, or I can go to prison. He, if he leaves the school, plays hooky, he will probably get picked up by the police, detained, labeled a truant, and then brought back to the prison. Services offered by government are not based on voluntary contract. The state expropriates its subject's wealth by compulsory taxation. Uh, so why are they taxing us at all? That, that's a good question. I think it goes back to the idea of taxes as a tool of compliance and terror. A budget is you planning ahead, and taxes is a method of procuring funds. So a budget means I sat down, I thought out my enterprise, it accounts for about this much, this is what I need over this period of time to account for my for operations. When you have a method of procuring your budget by just yanking more, you get to use ignorant excuses like, well, we, we were, not, we're not succeeding, so we need more money. That's not a correlation. Maybe these people are incompetent and they're squandering their money for, you know, it kind of, it doesn't make sense when you start breaking all the things down. Uh, the corporations don't pay taxes. Uh, business entities don't pay taxes. Only only people pay taxes because a tax is, is a is a burden. It's it's something that we bear almost in a physical, visceral sense. It's a way to uh, to ensure that Americans are docile and that Americans are frightened of their government. 
because that's the number one interaction most people have with the federal government is their annual tax form. The amount of tax revenue that government takes in doesn't cover everything it spends. And so to make up the difference, obviously they sell treasury debt. So, uh, you know, as, as bizarre as it sounds, if a, if a portion of the federal government's budget can be funded by debt, arguably the whole thing could be. We could have no income taxes, and the $4 trillion that the U.S. Fed Gov spends every year could, could be uh, financed via, via Treasury debt, and then ultimately monetized by the Fed. Central banks have significant control over the economies they govern. The Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, determines interest rates, controls the money supply, picks winners and losers, and enables nearly limitless government spending. Increase in my supply, keeping interest rates low. It turns out that is very beneficial for the federal government. The federal government, whenever they spend more, then they take in, in tax revenues to have to borrow. And just like anybody else has to borrow, we have to go to the credit markets and we have to borrow at the prevailing interest rate. Well, when the federal government, who has the ability to tax, they already get a lower interest rate uh, than the rest of us. They're able to borrow more when already the servicing on the debt, the interest payments on the debt, are already one of our biggest expenses. Um, with the debt that's, what is it now, $23 trillion. Uh, with that kind of debt, anybody else's credit would have run out a long time ago. They were able to keep on doing this because the interest rates are low. So the, the Fed's role in allowing the government to overspend on all kinds of things, but the biggest one would be military, on these wars, endless wars, they're able to keep doing that because they're just able to borrow at lower rates. The absolute monarchs, um, when they got into wars, uh, sometimes they'd run out of money. The treasury would run dry, so armies could not be paid, and they would stop battling in the field and go back. It was extremely expensive. Had Americans been forced to pay by taxation, for the Vietnam War, it would have stopped a lot sooner than it, than it did. America could simply print money and buy the things it needed to, 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 to fight the war without having to raise taxes. So it's because it spares people from having to, to pay a visible price for the war that the war can go on. State military conflicts destroy human lives pollute the environment, impoverish millions of people, and waste scarce resources in pursuit of state political goals. Regardless of whether they admit it or not, through all sources, about a trillion dollars goes to the so-called defense budget. Now that not only includes the six or seven hundred billion to DOD, but also State Department, a lot of U.S. aid, a lot of other things uh, in the federal budget are, are really defense spending, ma masquerading as something else. Well, government's too big and we need to cut spending. If they're not talking about defense, if they're not talking about entitlements, they're not being serious. There, there's no amount of cutting we could do in any other part of the government that would make a meaningful difference. As, as Randolph Bourne famously put it, war is the health of the state, right? The state benefits in lots of ways, directly and indirectly, from war. I mean, everybody remembers Orwell's 1984 and the idea that war was so endemic that you didn't even know who the current enemy was and they kept switching it around, right, so people didn't care. They just knew that they were constantly in a state of warfare, which of course 
uh, you know, allows the state to justify a lot of infringements on personal and community liberty that we would normally not tolerate, right? Oh, well, we're in a time of war, so we have to read your emails and we have to spy on uh, what you're doing and make sure that the enemy isn't, hasn't infiltrated, you know, our midst. The reason that most people go along with that, albeit, you know, with some, with some grumbling, is because they have been told, we're at war. We're at war with terrorists who would want to blow up airplanes and want to hurt you, and etc. So you've got to sacrifice some of your liberty for the security that we, the government, offers. Well, this, uh, this is an example of the, the U.S. government creating problems that it has the appearance then of solving. Uh, we created a problem in Libya with our foreign policy of regime change of the Gaddafi regime. When we did unleash hell on the people of Libya, uh, chaos broke out, as could be expected, as could be predicted, as we predicted. Uh, and that also, then, then that in turn requires more intervention because you had, uh, you had jihadists uh, moving into Chad and Niger and elsewhere. So you had to create more intervention to solve the problems that your, your intervention creates. But the U.S. uses jihadists, they use extremists as cat paws, they use it in Syria, they use the most violent Islamist extremists in Syria, places like Syria, to overthrow a completely secular regime, uh, government, uh, and, and, and we saw how many hundreds of thousands have died. Uh, the global war on terror uh, is ramped up and ramped down uh, on Washington's, uh, on Washington's uh, 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 as Washington needs new enemies or doesn't need new enemies, it's 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 in the very in the in the most it's fabricated in the very least. It's something that's created by our foreign policy. It's the same thing from the Reagan years, the Clinton years, and really some during H. Uh, w. Bush, but especially during the Bill Clinton years, and then again during Bush and Obama. America uses these jihadi, Saudi-backed Sunni suicide bomber terrorists for American imperial ends. Our government hates their adversaries more than they hate our blood enemies who have slaughtered Americans by the thousands and American soldiers by the thousands in Iraq War II as well. This is how crazy their priorities are compared to what the American people believe they were giving them the right to do to protect us from these terrorist groups. And of course, Obama's support for al-Qaeda in Syria led to the rise of the Islamic State. In 2013, they conquered all of eastern Syria. In 2014, they rolled into all of western Iraq, all of Iraqi Sunnistan. And the Islamo-Fascist Caliphate that had been Bin Laden's wildest dream from the attic he was hiding in and had been George Bush's most phony propaganda from the era of his terror war in Iraq had become true. Bush opened up western Iraq and then Obama backed them to the hilt in Syria to such a degree they were able to erase the Sykes-Picot border between Syria and Iraq and declare a brand new Islamist caliphate. And they had seized a territory the size of Great Britain which they held for three years before America had then, guess what, of course, had to ally with the Shia in Iraq, the Badr Brigade, the Iraqi Shiite army, and all of those Iranian-backed militias, America flew as their air force. The same guys our government wished they hadn't fought for in Iraq War II, 
They ended up fighting for him again in Iraq War III. And even now, our special operations forces are embedded with these, well, certainly the Iraqi army, but essentially one degree away from these very same Shiite militias, the ones that Donald Rumsfeld had used back in 2005 when he called it the El Salvador option. His death squads to hunt down the Sunnis. We're playing that same game right now. And so America is on both sides of this terror war all over the region. Same kind of thing is going on in Yemen. The war in Yemen is against an uh, Iranian-backed group called the Houthis who have taken over the capital city. And it has put the USA with our Saudi and UAE allies again directly on the side of Al-Qaeda flying as their air force against their primary enemies, the Houthis. And even the AP and CNN have reported about Al-Qaeda embedded with UAE forces driving American MRAP, IED resistant vehicles, and participating in the slaughter of civilians in that war. Again, with America flying as Al-Qaeda's air force against an enemy that is, has a friendly relationship with Iran. Not that Iran attacked us. At this point, it seems like through the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and now into the Trump governments, to see that this bait and switch continues on should mean to the American people, to any of us, libertarians or anyone else, that this government is not fit to be our security force. Our security is not its priority. Democide is when a government kills its own people. In the 20th century, it's been estimated 256 million people killed by their own government. That's six times greater than the amount who died in wars. The government and uh, the military, the U.S. military, uh, and other militaries uh, around the world, but primarily uh, we want to look at communist countries and, and, or socialist countries who killed uh, vast numbers of their own populations. I think that's the greatest indictment against. Thank you.